Thank you, Mary. Uh, what time is it? Where am I? <laughs> I'm really not sure. So if I fall asleep during my platform, please forgive me. Um, you know, it used to be that when I introduced myself to people, uh, Perry Sedman, I had to say Perry as in Perry Mason, you know, because people, people didn't know. Now there's Perrys like all over the place. Our piano player is Perry Biter, or the other Perry, as I call him. And then we have the governor of Texas. So now when I introduce, my, when I introduce myself, Perry as in Katie, and everybody knows immediately who I'm talking about. So what you're about to hear is a platform I gave here at West almost exactly 18 years ago, on November 14th, 1993. I've, I've tried hard <laughs> to edit it down from the uh, hour-long Don Montagna style <laughs> to the Amanda Poppy 20 to 30 minute style. And although I was somewhat successful, um, I think with my updates, it may still go a little bit over the Amanda style, and I'm giving you fair warning right now. And I had to cut out, unfortunately, a lot of personal anecdotes, such as when I was in the fifth grade across the street at Shepherd Elementary School, I grew up in this neighborhood, and I was always, for some reason, chosen last on the baseball team of my peers, and to add insult to injury, I was assigned to play right field <laughs> because no balls were ever hit to right field. Actually, it hurt. But what I found interesting is that in reviewing my old platform, very little needed revision. I mean, some names have been updated. I had to change Bill Clinton to Barack Obama. Uh, but the overriding message is basically unchanged. The ending, however, is a little bit changed as a result of some rather exciting current events. My conclusion will be a little more hopeful than it was 18 years ago. So to start off, I'd like to tell you a story that I think embodies the essence of competition. Two friends were hiking in the wilds of Montana near Glacier National Park, and they came across a grizzly bear who they saw about 100 yards in the distance. And this bear started lumbering towards them. One fellow pulled his running shoes out of his backpack, threw himself off the ground, and started pulling off his hiking boots and putting on his running shoes. Now, his friend was watching him, and he was pretty amazed. And he says, you don't think those running shoes are going to help you outrun that bear, do you? And the first fellow looked up to him and said, I don't have to outrun the bear. I only have to outrun you. <laughs> Seriously, not a day goes by without a news story or two that mentions competition. For example, I read in a New York Times Magazine section recently about kids who grow up too fast. The story said, the kid of yesterday who wandered in meadows of fantasy, whose tears were reserved for skin knees and broken toys, has given way to the kid who is strapped to the competitive fast track before he is out of diapers. Doing research for this platform, I went to the library. I punched in competition. Here are some of the titles that came up. 
swim with the sharks without being eaten alive. Outsell, outmanage, outmotivate, and outnegotiate your competition. Here is my favorite how to work the competition into the ground and have fun doing it. <laughs> Here's one that's a little sad Teenage Competition, a Survival Guide. Now, many of these books and articles assume that competition is good for us or that it's our natural way to be, and we don't really have any choice but to compete. This is how completely enmeshed our society is in competition. Imagine, if you will, a spectrum of competition. At one end are societies that function without any competition at all, and at the total opposite end is the United States of America. Our entire economic system is predicated on competition. Our schooling trains us to beat others and regard them as obstacles to our own success. Even in our own families, there is rivalry for attention and love and approval. Leisure time is filled with games in which one person or team must defeat another. <clears throat> we can't even go dancing without getting involved in a dance contest. Well, to begin with, we need a working definition of competition. Competition is two or more people trying to achieve a goal that cannot be achieved by all of them. Or in other words, one person succeeds only if another does not. Now, in our culture, I believe that we are taught to compete. Competitive behavior is not the way we want to be. It is not the way we were born. We were born, I believe, as completely good human beings, compassionate, wanting to love and be loved, and to cooperate and be close to one another. What happens? As we go, grow older, we are raised in a society where competition is like breathing. We are inevitably hurt by it because competition is antithetical to being close and loving, having fun, and yes, antithetical to eliciting the best in each other and ourselves. Com competitive behavior is so ingrained in our society, we don't even notice it's happening. My theme today is quite simple. Competition is an inherently undesirable thing. There is no such thing as healthy competition. It is an oxymoron. Competition is bad for us and is bad for society. Competition doesn't do anyone any good, certainly not the losers and not even the winners. The path to fairness and kindness requires the elimination of all contests of any kind where there is a winner and a loser. In fact, no contest should be our theme. <laughs> no contest is also a tribute to Alfie Kohn, K-O-H-N, for his excellent book, No Contest, The Case Against Competition. First, I would like to briefly cover four myths about competition. Myth number one says that competition is part of human nature. In other words, we are born to compete. I don't believe it. I recently saw a movie called Please Vote For Me. It is an incredible film available on Netflix. How many have seen it? Put it on your list, get it now. It's a documentary about a group of third graders in China who are given the assignment of electing a class monitor. 
This is the first time an election has been held in any public school in China. The kids don't even know what the words democracy or vote mean. The teacher nominated three candidates, two boys and a girl, who agree to run for class monitor but do not really know what running means. <laughs> the teacher decides that there will be three campaign activities for the candidates, a kickoff speech, a talent show, and a closing debate. The kickoff speeches were benign, but it wasn't long before the three candidates figured out that in order for them to win, they had to get the most votes, and their two classmates had to get fewer votes. Now, while initially each one focused on getting more votes by being friendly to their classmates and eventually bragging about their own qualities, very soon they figured out how to badmouth the other two candidates in order to reduce their votes. Each began to make lists of the other candidates' faults by going around to their fellow students to find out what was wrong with their other classmates. Then they each denounced the faults of their classmates in front of the entire class in the first recorded instance of attack ads in China. During the later talent performances, one of the student candidates recruited other students to boo the other candidates during their performance and to actually shout, that's terrible, or that's way off tune, right during their performance. The girl candidate broke down and cried when this happened to her. Some of her classmates also openly cried in sympathy. They had never experienced anything so cruel. The final activity, the debates, turned into accusations and denials of particular traits such as, you cry too much, you're too strict, you would be a dictator, etc. One, ca one candidate gleefully shouted, you're a liar, as he pointed out something inconsistent that his, another opponent had said. Each of the students agonized over their final speeches, gave them nervously, each one ending with, please vote for me. One boy went last, and at the end of his speech, he handed out gifts to each student. He won in a landslide. The two losing candidates cried uncontrollably. A number of students cried with them. The teacher then announced what a good lesson this had been for them. This is how the world works when you grow up and you have just learned how to compete. What better evidence is there that we are not born to compete? It is taught to us by society. Myth number two, competition is more productive. Now the question really is, do we perform better when we are trying to beat others or when we, or when we are working with them? Now the evidence in the literature is really overwhelming. We perform better when we work together. Now the key is to realize that trying to do well and trying to beat others are two different things. Paying attention to who is winning distracts us from the task at hand. For example, the child who is frantically waving his arm in class to answer a question, when called on, can forget what he was about to say. His focus was on beating his classmates. Someone who runs for president, who is a good campaigner, does not necessarily make a good executive. Think Bill Clinton. 
They are different skills. Competition is also not productive because it makes people suspicious of and hostile towards one another. In contrast, in a cooperative environment, people feel accepted by others, and they feel safer to take risks, to play with possibilities, to benefit from mistakes rather than trying to hide mistakes in order to avoid ridicule. Also, cooperation results in better performance because it's more fun. Competition is a distinct cause of anxiety since in a given competition, a lot of people will lose. Competing also promotes a selfish orientation. When we compete, we do so out of concern for our own welfare. If we became concerned about the welfare of a group of people, then cooperation would follow naturally. This is why keeping workers of different groups pitted against each other in a competitive way is such an effective strategy for maintaining the status quo. Now, Adam Smith, the prime theorist of capitalism, said, when each person tries to further his or her best interest, each person gains. Well, I believe he was wrong because he focused on the individual without considering the, the effect on the group as a whole. Competition between individuals is damaging to the group and therefore to most individuals in the group. Myth number three, competition is more enjoyable. Now many people defend competition in recreation or sports. The problem here is that if you are trying to win, you are not experiencing true playfulness, fun, joy, and self-satisfaction. Any activity whose goal is victory cannot be play. They say that sports builds character. Yes, but it builds exactly the kind of character that is most useful for our social system. From the perspective of those who control the wealth in this country, it is very useful to have people regard each other as rivals. And sports serves this purpose very nicely. If she is on a team, the athlete comes to see cooperation only as a means to victory, to see hostility and even aggression as legitimate, to accept conformity and authority. There is proof all around us that competition is not enjoyable. I recently read an interview with Rem Koolhaas, the famous Dutch architect, who said, now there is zero communication among architects. We're all doing our own thing. None of it is even remotely connected to the tradition of our own countries. There's nothing Dutch about my architecture. We are constantly competing against each other and winning a competition can make the difference between five years of work and nothing. It's difficult, he said, to remain lucid and friendly. Now the fourth and last myth is competition builds character. For this myth, we have to ask, why do we compete? And Alfie Cohn in his book suggested that we compete to compensate sometimes for low self-esteem. Of course, we here at the Ethical Society know that self-esteem is not conditional. It does not append, depend on winning approval from others or winning contests. Despite this ideal, our self-esteem may have been injured by hurts resulting from competition, 
So it may not be functioning at our ethical ideal. So we might try to prove that we are smarter than others in order to convince ourselves at some level that we are a good person. Regardless of self-esteem, anyone can be shaken by a loss. Losing hurts. What about the thrill of victory? Well, despite the excitement, winning fails to satisfy us in the long run. Whether we are talking about the chairman of the board or winners of the Super Bowl, to become number one is immediately to become the target for your rivals. King of the Mountain is much more than just a child's game. It is a prototype for all competition. The discovery that making it is often a hollow game is a traumatic event to the successful competitor, and one that I personally experienced. After starting my own law firm in the early 80s and working like a dog maybe 60, 70 hours a week or more, and building up the firm for 10 years, I realized that to some of my corporate clients, I was only as good as my last victory. I was constantly on the line to produce a win in each case, and losses had to be analyzed in anguishing post-mortems, as if life and death were at stake instead of just money. I fortunately managed to get off of that particular roller coaster. I discovered that all winning means is that we need to do it again and again and again. It's like an addiction. The more we compete, the more we need to compete. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is since both winning and losing have undesirable effects, it seems clear that the problem lies with competition itself. Competing drags us down, it devastates us psychologically, it poisons our relationships, it interferes with our performance. Now acknowledging those things would be very painful. If we had to confront them, it would force us to make radical changes in our lives. So, instead, we create and accept rationalizations for competition. It's part of human nature, it's more productive, it's fun, it builds character. They are all false. Now let's talk about men and women and competition. American men are brought up to win. A boy learns not to be liked, but to be envied, not to reflect, but to act not to be part of a group, but to distinguish himself from others in the group, not to be warm and close, but to be tough and distant. Boys are tremendously hurt emotionally around these issues. Men's competitive training comes out when we meet other men, when we undercut our colleagues, when we put down our own children. It comes out when we talk, when we argue, even when there's no disagreement, just for the chance to come out ahead. For us men, the very act of speaking is often an opportunity to establish who really is best, stronger, smarter, or ultimately more powerful. And men, again, are very hurt by these things because deep down inside, we really want to be close to each other. What about women? Well. It's a bit of a mixed message. Some women are raised to compete and others are not. Over the last 20, 30 years or so, many 
urged women to compete and accept competitiveness as appropriate or even healthy. In fact, that movement is so strong, you either must agree that competition for women is desirable, or you're a sexist who believes that only men have the right to be successful. So the question really is, is this trend towards more competitive women good or bad? I think it's bad. Because when women compete, what suffers is the terribly important female commitment to relationship as it comes out in moral reasoning, in childhood play, and in conversation. The shift towards competition represents, I believe, a potential abandonment of this commitment, an attenuation of care. Why should women respond to sexism by appropriating the worst of male values? The fact that men have had a monopoly on competitiveness does not make it desirable. What do women need to do? Well, the woman who hears a squawk from her conscience when she begins to see her friends as obstacles to her own success should not seek to silence that voice. Rather, she should question her own actions along with the win-lose structure that led her to feel that way. The goal is not to be unable to compete, but to choose not to learn how. In its place, women need to truly affirm relationship. This time around, maybe the lesson will be cooperation and men will be the students. What is it about competition that damages relationships? Well, had we set out to deliberately, sa deliberately sabotage relationships, we could have hardly have done better than to arrange for people to have to compete against one another. If I regard you as a rival over who I must triumph, you become an it to me, <clears throat> an object, something I use for my own ends. Depriving our adversaries of personalities, of faces, of their subjectivity is a strategy we automatically adopt in all areas in order to win, whether it is relationships, sports, or the ultimate competition, war. It is difficult to imagine a more telling indictment of an activity than the fact that it requires such depersonalization. In contrast, cooperative settings promote more mutual liking, more sharing, and more helping behaviors. An example of this, fifth grade boys after a bowling game were given some coins and invited to contribute some of them to a March of Dimes canister. Those who were told they had won gave away more than those who were told they had lost. But those who had played non-competitively gave away the most of all. The point is that competition discourages generosity. Look at Steve Jobs. Despite his enormous wealth resulting from unimaginable success in the competitive marketplace, he gave very little of it away. Competition is also a kind of aggression. Studies have demonstrated that athletic competition not only fails to reduce aggression, as some have suggested, but actually encourages it. It was President Eisenhower who said, the true mission of American sports is to prepare young people for war. 
Athletic competition consists of and promotes warlike aggression. We see more and more evidence of this in professional sports. Fights regularly now erupt, not only in hockey, but football, basketball, and baseball games as well. And sadly, fan violence is now a frequent companion to sports competition. Aggressive behavior extends in any competitive arena, even the classroom. It's not hard to understand why children can be violent against each other when in the classroom the highest praise is reserved for those who have beaten their peers. Is there an alternative to competition that is better for relationships? Well, the simple fact is that when we cooperate, we are inclined to like each other more. Even in our merciless, competitive society, each of us has had a cooperative encounter, working with others to paint a room, complete a report, put on a craft fair. Cooperation teaches us the value of relationship. Cooperation means that the success of each participant is linked to that of the other. Studies show that in a cooperative environment, children encourage each other. They are more sensitive to others' needs. They have improved communication. They trust each other more. Why? Well, it's because I will look very different to someone for whom I am a rival than to someone with whom I am a partner. So it's one thing to feel hostile in a contest that pits one person against another. It is something else to feel the aggression that rages in group rivalries. Think of the horrible results of multiplying hatred by the number of people in the group. It leads to a we versus they mentality that, after all, is at the heart of every war. It is not readily apparent how we can end the awful legacy of nationalism, the intergroup competitions between countries that now threaten the existence of so many humans. We need to expand cooperation to include as many people as possible in solving problems. There's certainly enough problems to occupy us indefinitely, and our work on them will have the delightful consequence of bringing us together if we join in solving them. So a quick word about politics. <laughs> wow, talk about competition. To state the obvious, the Congress and the President have a lot of difficulty getting legislation passed, all because of competition. I mean, the fundamental basis of politics is someone wins and someone loses. It's really no mystery how someone as well-intended as Barack Obama beats his Republican opponent in 2008 and in 2011 scratches his head in wonderment as his calls for bipartisan support go unheeded. The Republicans obviously know very well that if they cooperate with him now, it will help him beat them in 2012. Is it any wonder so little gets done? In the last 18 years, this has really gone to extremes. The recent debt ceiling travesty, perhaps being the low watermark, soon to be lowered even more by the so-called super committee. <clears throat> Members of Congress <clears throat> excuse me, are so worried about winning and losing in the next election that the instance of a politician doing the right thing for the common good is all too rare. 
More and more elected representatives, and usually the good ones, are retiring long before their time. They are simply beaten down by the constant fighting, the cutthroat competition, and the hurtful positions they need to make in order to get anything done. Change is always the hot button in politics, but as long as we are chained, as, as long as all we are changing is a winner for a loser, we all lose. After the voters have changed winners and losers enough times without seeing any difference in our society, perhaps we will all get the message that something structural needs to change. Well, now we come to the fun part, because that wasn't fun. I have seven notions about how I'd like things to look in a competition-free society. First, we've had our war on poverty and our war on terrorism. Let's declare war on competition. Competition will be outlawed. Now, the transition from competition to cooperation won't be easy, so we will have some CA programs and some competition enders courses. And it'll help those who don't think they have the willpower to stop competing cold turkey. Number two, and some of you will like this and some of you won't, no more Redskin games. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, the NFL will become a vestige of a bygone era. People will no longer find entertaining the prospect of grown men beating each other's brains out for money. In fact, professional sports will die out altogether. The money now used to pay athletes will be channeled towards more socially productive goals. People will still watch athletic events like figure skating or gymnastics, but the athletes, the athletes will not be graded or scored. We'll be watching for the pure enjoyment of it, like a play or concert. Now, number three, all elections in which there is a winner and a loser will be outlawed, recognizing the inherent worth of every individual. Our leaders will be chosen not based on who runs the best campaign, but on who volunteers. Our own ethical society will lead the way by abolishing elections for the board of trustees. <laughs> applause, applause. <laughs> 18 years I've been saying this. <laughs> West will establish a council of elders, now I'm old enough to be on it, <laughs> whose job it will be to tap members for the next board based in part on those members who volunteer, and everyone volunteering will be given a job to do. Number four, grades in school will be done away with. Those who want higher education will be able to get it. Children will be praised for not trying, I'm sorry, for trying and for learning rather than for getting high test scores. In fact, tests will also be outlawed. We will stop making up contests everywhere. So number five, and this is my personal favorite, a new breed of politician will emerge, one who is not interested in winning or losing or soliciting contributions, and not one who is preoccupied with smearing his or her opponent. Rather, one who accepts an office to work together with others for the common good to cooperatively solve the problems we face. One who is not skilled in sound bites, but one who is skilled in building consensus for solving problems. Number six, all jobs in our society 
including the very important and difficult job of being a parent, will be paid at exactly the same wage. Ooh, socialism, ooh. <laughs> Finally, notion number seven. I always stop for applause. Diversity training will be mandatory so we can each appreciate how alike we all are despite physical and cultural differences. No longer will it be important for a country to achieve enormous wealth or acquire territory at the expense of another. All boundaries, state, city, national, and international will come tumbling down as people learn the benefits of cooperation and realize that geographic boundaries are simply barriers that produce isolation and competition. Now, my closing words to you in 1993 are as follows, quote, as we leave here and re-enter the most competitive society we have ever known, think about challenging some basic assumptions inherent in our economic and political system. Instead of taking competition for granted Whereas inevitable, we should ask what broader arrangements can present us with a structure that does not require winners and losers. Now, on my plane ride back from Beijing, I'm, I'm reading, now this is now, I'm reading New York Magazine, which I started subscribing to the minute that Frank Rich started writing for it. And Frank Rich had this piece a couple weeks ago called this is what class war looks like, in which he compares the 1932 war veterans' mass vigil on the lawn of the U.S. Capitol to the Occupy Wall Street demonstrations taking place in Zuccotti Park in New York City, both of which occurred during a terrible jobless recession after Congress had bailed out some fat cat bankers and financiers. Anyway, this Frankwich piece was fabulous, as usual, but the thing that caught my eye was a side piece, a discussion between former Governor Elliot Spitzer and an Occupy Wall Street protester named Manissa Maharwal. She's a CUNY grad student in anthropology. Now, Spitzer is a bona fide liberal. He was talking about how to get the existing economic system back on track. Manissa was talking about how Occupy Wall Street was having a totally different conversation. And if you'll allow me, I can do no better than to quote briefly some of the back and forth between Elliot and Marissa, I'm sorry, Manissa, because it gives me hope like no other I've had in the last 18 years. So Manissa says, sure, there are a lot of people asking how to reform the system but there are also a lot of people asking why all of their value has to do with their employment or how much money they make. People are asking questions, she says, like, how do we create communities that aren't based on capital and aren't based on valuing things in terms of money? That's what's exciting, she said, about being in a space like Zuccotti Park. It's a place where you can have a chance to radically reimagine the world. Elliot asks, how are you reimagining it? Manissa says, we are actually here in this space. 
We're going to try to figure out our problems ourselves. How to run a country of 300 million people like that is an open-ended question. But I think, she says, talking, letting people make decisions about their own lives, letting people take part in local neighborhood forms of governance, these are some ways to start. Spitzer says, the point now is to be speaking with passion about dissatisfaction and setting an agenda for the conversation. But eventually, he says, to succeed, you need to have some sense of how you want to change things. Otherwise, you're going around in a circle. Manissa says, success means different things to different people. What Occupy Wall Street has already done is create a space for people to come together and voice dissent in a way that actually has not been possible in this city. One of the reasons, she says, this movement has been without demands is because without demands, we can shift. The moment you have a list of demands, you have politicians in power taking all of those demands and explaining to you why they aren't going to work. I say to Manissa, you go, girl. <laughs> you are absolutely right. We need a structural, fundamental change. It's not something that can be reduced to a list of demands, because a list of demands presupposes that the fundamentals are valid. And we only need to tweak a few things here and there, and we'll be OK. Not so as Manissa and the Occupy Wall Streeters wonderfully realize. I believe we each have a deep desire, a longing for cooperative endeavors amongst humans, for cooperative social interaction, and for cooperative achievement in problem solving. In the end analysis, the only thing we have to compete with is competition itself. Thank you.